Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. With me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 1st of August 2022 and this is episode 266. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to soldier, historian and author, Captain Jonathan Bratton, an officer in the United States Army and an instructor at the United States Military Academy at West Point, about his recent book on the United States 103rd Infantry Regiment during the Great War. Just as a proviso, the opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the United States military or any other US government uh, department. Jonathan spoke to me on this basis from his office in the United States. So, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Now, before I start, I should say that all the views expressed on the podcast today do not represent the opinions of the US military or any US government department and are solely personal between myself and my guest, uh, Jonathan. So, Jonathan, before, before we get underway and look at the 103rd Infantry Regiment, could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Mm, thanks so much, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on and including the, you know, the, the, the disclaimer that I, I always have to have. It's, it's nice to have someone else do it rather than me say it. Um, first off, it's, it's a huge thrill to be on here. Uh, really excited. Um, it's also not a place that I ever thought I'd be. Um, most of my life, I was, I think, like most Americans who get the military history bug, we either gravitate towards one of two directions, right? It's either the American Civil War or World War II, um, both of which, uh, you know, you can come out with all sorts of different uh, different assumptions, et cetera. Um, what I, I, I was never interested in World War I until I, I took the position as the command historian for the main Army National Guard. And I was sitting in my office one day and I was just reading the regimental history because like, like many World War I regiments, as soon as they got home, they put together a history. And so I'm reading this and I'm going, okay, yeah, they were in World War I, blah, blah, blah. You know, they, that's like nine months of combat, whatever. And then I'm like, as I'm reading, I'm like, oh, they weren't just like there in what like they were one of the first units to arrive, one of the first American combat units to arrive uh, in France. Uh, in World War One, okay, so that's that's kind of significant. And I'm reading, I'm like, okay, so they're ever they're in like most of the major operations. They've got five campaign stars out of uh, out of World War One. Wow, that's that's kind of amazing. And then I started. Um, I, I don't know how to how to say it other than you get the Great War bug, uh, which I think many people listening can can relate to. Is just this feeling of. I must know more now. Now I now I absolutely have to uh, have to, to to find out more about this. And you sort of get obsessed, and you know your friends are like, "Hey, can you stop talking so much about this thing?" And we don't really care. Can you go back to the time when you're talking about the Civil War? So it's something we understand. Um, but yeah, I, I I got the bug, and uh, and and I got it hard, and so um, and that led me to 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 the book but also to um uh, a couple trips to france uh got to go over to be one of the representatives for the u.s army during the centennial commemorations which was incredible um so it's it's really 
that sort of interest just opened up this whole new world for me of, uh, of, of things to discover and learn. And it's really, especially in the United States, such an untapped sort of perspective. Yes, uh, uh, it is a bit like that for me. Um, we say the Western Front Association, you know, you can check out whenever time you want but you can never leave um, but anyway um, before we get into the into the detail could you start by telling us about the regimental structure of the american expeditionary force during the great war i think this is pertinently pertinent for british uh, audiences as our regimental and brigade structure is very different yes yeah that's a, that's a great point um and, and it is sort of looking at the uh looking at the the british expeditionary forces uh, correct me if I, I think your division is about 14, 15,000. Yeah, yes, about yeah, that. Yeah, so, and, uh, but French and Germans are, are fairly comparable. So this was, um, this is one of those great U.S. moments of, um, hey, we see a problem. The problem is being able to, and a, a division being able to maintain its offensive movement uh, while sustaining casualties. Um, but still maintaining its offensive momentum, because of course in America we're all built all around attacking and going on the offensive, and would definitely ignore anyone who said, "Hey, maybe you should, maybe you should learn how to do that first. Um, so Pershing, General Pershing, commander, gets appointed to command of the AEF in 1917, and he's looking around. And the U.S. Army has not had a permanent division system yet in its history. It's definitely had. It, it, we've used divisions ever since. Uh, you know, the the war of American independence, or um, uh, however we, we we would refer to it in Great Britain, the uh, the regrettable those regrettable times with those upstart colonies. <laughs> but uh, so we've been using divisions, but never a permanent division structure. So this is the first time in the U.S. Army we get a permanent division structure. And Pershing is looking at the Western Front, and he's realizing I need something that can take losses at a alarming rate, because that's what World War One provides. Um, and so he doubles down, literally doubles the size of a division. Um, with, so you have an AEF division of 28,000 men, which is rather unwieldy, to say the least. Um, what this doesn't come with, it doesn't, it it, it comes with, uh, you know, all your support units, but not enough. It comes with artillery, Never enough. I mean, I don't know that anyone's ever satisfied with the amount of artillery you get in World War One. You always want more. But what it also does is it creates a massive infantry regiment. You're looking at around 3,500 troops for one infantry regiment divided up into three battalions, which means, I mean, that is, there, there's no one in the U.S. Army who's been, especially who's maneuvered a regiment of 35, 3,800 troops. Uh, with each battalion being essentially the size that the old regiment was in the in the U.S. Army, um, so scale of companies at two two hundred and fifty. So each battalion had four four rifle companies in it, um, two hundred and fifty soldiers per company broken out into four platoons. Everything is at a scale that nobody in the American Army is comfortable with, familiar with, and that is going to present massive problems when it when we look at, at deploying a AEF division into World War I. Um, and it, ironically, it's going to cause more casualties, even though it's designed to ensure that a division can continue its offensive um, momentum. And in reality, you're looking at 
it's only about a week that a, a division can maintain a, a steady offensive before it is used up and has to go to the rear and for for R and R. So why a book on the hundred and third regiment? Yeah, Ooh, it's always a good question. Why write a book? Um, I always like to say I never set out to write a book on World War One. Um, I always thought if I was going to write a book, it was probably going to be something on the Civil War. Um, what happened was, as I said, I started getting interested in this regiment as it was part of my job, but also the individuals began to sort of call to me and their stories. And as time advanced, I started started tripping over stories, stumbling on them, stumbling across them. Sometimes stories would drop in my lap um, because, as I mentioned before, this is a largely untapped sort of genre in in U.S thought really. Um, we don't, we don't, we, we sort of acknowledge World War One as it goes by and say, hey, we wave at it and say, yep, we won that one. Now we're going to go to World War II and win that and keep winning everything. And so we tell ourselves that we won everything. Um, but uh, there's no, there, the, the impact that World War One had in the moment, it was, was a concussive moment uh, in the United States. And I use that word deliberately. It, it was a shockwave through the United States. Um, and it, it, sh- just like the war shaped the world, the war shaped the United States in the beginning of the 20th century. And it, it, it shaped the U.S. Army to be the force that it is today. Um, but really, it was the soldiers themselves within the, the 103rd Infantry Regiment that sort of called to me, literally finding diaries, journals, letters. Um, I started finding company commanders, combat logs for their companies um, and getting the day-by-day descriptions of what was happening. And then battalion commanders and regimental letters and memoirs and unpublished, lots of unpublished things because for whatever reason, um, the Americans stopped writing about World War I around 1924. There's this glut of memoirs and journals and, and publishing uh, th- from 1919 all the way through about 1924. And then it just stops um, it, and, and the whole generation sort of goes silent. So after a while, um, I began to realize I have so many stories here. There's so many soldiers here who's, who have done incredible things, just acts of bravery, funny stories. Of course, that's, a, you know, soldier humor is a great, a great thing that carries us through sort of the depressive moments of World War I. Um, that's one of those amazing things where you can see human beings having incredible sense of humor, joking and laughing in the midst of just the worst of the worst the world and humanity can offer. Um, and I think it's that human element that really drew me to these individuals and the fact that their stories hadn't been told. And so eventually I sort of had to, I, I had to admit to myself, you know, you have enough here to, to write something. Um, and, and that's how a, I, I, I didn't go about to write a book on the 103rd regiment in world war one. And yet, it happened. <laughs> I'm afraid I know the feeling. I'm doing something on the British 56th Division, which was my grandfather's uh, formation. And again, and I've done a PhD in it, and now I'm writing the book. But anyway, <laughs> that that is another story. Now, the 103rd, like my grandfather's uh, battalion, was a territorial, or it was a part-time unit. It was a National Guard unit. What type of soldiers formed the ranks of this unit before the war? And could you briefly explain what the National Guard was was actually meant to do? Oh, great questions. Yes, very, um, yes, very much part-time soldiers. It's this, the strong um, tradition of militia in the United States that goes back to our, our uh, how shall I say, uh, our benevolent fathers. 
of the British Empire. Uh, no, it's it's definitely it's an English tradition that we've we've continued on. Of course, you know, developed in England really in the thirteenth century or so, and this idea that that it, you, sh- you have a force formed of commoners for the common defense, um, and uh, especially in New England, that tradition was very very strong. So, for example, um, the the oldest units in the U.S. Army are in Mass- the Massachusetts National Guard. They go back to 1636 um, with the first muster of the of uh, of the, the the full regiments of the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony Militia. So, I don't know, 1636, you know, that's nothing in, in European timelines. That's sort of just yesterday. In America, you know, that's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, we can't even comprehend that type of time distance. But uh, the, the National Guard by 1916, 1917, has morphed beyond just state defense forces, a, a local uh, force for the common defense. It is now the U.S. Army Strategic Reserve, and um, with new legislation passed by Congress in 1916 under the National Defense Act, um, that was sort of given teeth in the forms of money. Um, and so now the National Guard would be trained, equipped, uh, and and formed along the same lines as their regular Army counterparts, um, which is a big deal. And World War One, I, I mean, talk about timeliness. Um, was the act was definitely passed with the Great War in mind. No one was very oblivious of what was happening across the ocean. And uh, and so by 1917, the there is at least a framework to start building out this force of part-time soldiers into a full-time army. Um, so the 103rd Infantry Regiment does not start out that way. It starts out as the old 2nd Main Infantry Regiment. Um, and this is an organization that had been around since the early 1800s, um, fought in the American Civil War, mobilized for, uh, for the Spanish-American War, spent some time in Cuba, um, doing some, you know, taking part in America's uh, jots in, into some imperialism. Um, and it is, a, it is an interesting group. Um, so it's about 2,000 soldiers from the, from the 2nd Maine. Um, and they are a odd mix of sort of the, you know, the old Anglo-Saxon families that came over from uh, the original, original grants under, under Charles the, now well, there are several grants that kept changing, kept changing as England changed monarchs, uh, the, the colony itself changed rules. Um, but you've got these old, old uh, Anglo-Saxon families, you have a lot of influx of new blood from from Eastern Europe. Uh, so many immigrants coming over from from Eastern and even uh, Western Europe, as well as um, Canadians coming down from uh, from New Brunswick. So a lot of a lot of French Canadians moving uh, to take in to take jobs in a lot of the large um, uh, mills like the paper mills and shoe factories and industry that that uh, sort of spotted uh, all across Maine. And then you have small coastal communities, fishing communities of um, of uh, uh, like the, the company from Eastport, which is the Braggs as being the easternmost uh, city in the in the continental United States. Uh, you know, everyone always has to have a point of pride. Um, you also have uh, so you have a lot of foreign born soldiers from Italy from uh, even some from Turkey, from Russia, um, you some from Greece. Uh, there's there's a couple Germans in there, uh, German natives from Mecklenburg who are going to, uh, you know, have to 
make a very difficult decision. They're going to go and fight against their, essentially their families. Um, they're, and, and they're drawn from um, all different occupations and social classes. You have, you have the lawyers and you have the laborers, you have clerks, you have mill workers. It's a really democratic organization. Um, you have Native Americans serving from the Native American communities in Maine. Um, with the exception of, of African Americans, it is, it is an incredibly diverse organization that really reflects the, the demographics of, of New England at the time, which is this really vibrant community that's filled with this influx of immigrants and this sort of shifting, shifting peoples. Um, and so it is, uh, it's got your, your young soldiers just graduated from high school, um, which is sort of a tragic story. And you've got literally old soldiers from veterans of the British Army who, you know, settled in settled in Maine and sort of saw, thought, oh, we'll do this National Guard thing. Uh, and then they end up fighting uh, on at the Second Battle of the Marnes. Uh, one, one is killed in action at the Second Marne. Um, and so you you have really people drawn from from all different all different occupations and walks of life. And was the unit um, substantially under strength when it was mobilized in 1917, or was it reasonably up to its establishment? So like I said, it was, uh, it was at 2,000 soldiers uh, when it was um, after mobilization and, and then a, a, a prolonged recruitment campaign. Um, the, the recruiting offices were open um, you know, all seven days a week, which is a shocker, you know, open on Sundays. Um, and operating as long as there, pretty much as long as there was daylight, there's this amazing call from the governor of Maine um, that Civil War and Spanish-American War veterans come to the recruiting stations to try to drum up interest. And you can imagine, you know, you walk to the recruiting station, and there's a guy, old man sitting there with no legs, and he's telling you to, to, to come to the colors, and you're thinking, hmm, I don't know about this. But it is remarkably effective. Uh, and there's actually, there's joint recruiting done, especially in northern Maine on the Canadian border with the Canadian Army. So you have elements of the Canadian Expeditionary Force and the American Expeditionary Force um, having these recruiting meetings at the same time saying, hey, you know, maybe you can go with them, you can go with us. Do you want to join the Navy? Uh, really remarkable, right? Like this, there's there's not this idea now of, oh, no, you can't. The, the, it's a very nebulous border, the border between uh Maine and New Brunswick was very nebulous at the time, lots of cross-border activity. Um, and so, yes, it, it's at full strength um, for a regiment under the 1916 establishment, but under the 1917 establishment, it needs to be much larger. And so what happens is, and this happens all across the country, the old militia units begin to lose their lose their colors, really. Um, and it's, it's sort of a, a sad moment that the first New Hampshire infantry and about 400 soldiers from the 1st Vermont uh, are pushed, sort of melded together in with the men of the 2nd Maine, and they form this new 103rd, uh, 103rd Infantry Regiment at its, at its full wartime strength. But this is something that, as I said, is happening across the country. The old uh, militia units sort of getting cannibalized to form this new modern type fighting force for a modern war. So the unit is mobilized and it is sent to France. And what division did it serve with uh, in the American Expeditionary Force? Yeah, so it's going to form uh, a part of the 26th Division. Um, the, it is one of the first four, red, uh, first four 
infantry divisions to arrive in France uh, with the, the first, second, 26th, and 42nd, or the first four divisions to arrive over that winter, that fall and winter of 1917. Uh, the first division will be the first ones to go into line with the French uh, in, uh, in the fall, late fall of 17. Um, and uh, it, is, it is a remarkable... Um, it's remarkable reading the, the diaries of the soldiers because they're arriving at a time where the U.S. Army is not there in force. I mean, you're looking at about 100, 150,000 soldiers. There's no, uh, they have not yet begun the massive construction of cantonment areas and logistics bases and everything that's needed to sustain troops. So soldiers are sleeping in, you know, wherever they can find a place. Uh, they unfortunately, now, unfortunately for my English listeners, I, I cannot say that they enjoyed their couple of weeks staying in England where they were um, in camp at Borden. And it rained. Apparently it rained the entire time. You know, soldiers saying water, water is in sort of every part of my existence. The, the water is coming up from the ground. I hate it here. Can I go get shot at? Um, but a couple officers get to go to London and, and do things like that. But Suffice to say, they're very, very excited to to cross the channel, even in cattle boats, uh, to get to Le Havre, and um, and they do talk about though interacting with with British soldiers or Commonwealth soldiers, really, um, because it's uh, you know it is a true world war for the British Empire, and learning sort of the stories that these that these soldiers are carrying with them and getting their first idea of what. What does the Western Front look like um, from these from these veterans of the the Commonwealth? Um, and, uh, and and so by by the fall, uh, they are settled into their first their first sort of cantonment area in in France um, and beginning to try to figure out what comes next because they haven't really had a good time to train as a full division and they're never really going to get that training time um, because the uh, you know the Germans get a little bit feisty at the beginning of 1918 <laughs> and decide decide to launch a few offensives <laughs> which leads me on to my next question is what was their operational history in France from 1917 uh, to 1918 what sort of actions were the 103rd involved in I think you've you've, you've indicated a couple already. Yeah, they um, so the, the the 26th goes into its first front in February of 1918 when um, you know the Entente uh, Foch is looking around and trying to figure out how to balance balances troops with sort of what everyone on the Entente knows is coming, which is the Germans are probably going to attack us because we're on the defensive, waiting for American manpower so we can rebalance this and 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 take the offensive again. Um, and so the the 26 goes into its first position on the Chemin de Dame uh, front, which is at the luckily at that time a very quiet sector. Um, they're there from February through through uh, through March. Of course, very shortly thereafter, it is not going to be a quiet sector as the Germans come through there. But that's their first front, and so that's where they learn the basics of of how to survive on the Western front. What does it mean to live in trenches, to conduct resupply at night? What does it mean to operate with machine guns and artillery? And they do all the silly things of as soon as everyone, you know, they see an airplane for the first time and everyone runs out of every single dugout that they're in and every trench to see the airplane and then it starts shooting at them. And then they learn, okay, maybe we don't do this. Um, so they begin to learn there. They next transition to another defensive sector, uh, the tool sector, which is on the south end of the San Miguel salient. And it's here that they're really actually combat tested. Uh, this is where the Germans are beginning to, um, it's a much more active enemy under the, 
under the uh, or looking down on them from Maltsec, a very dominating position. And this is where they first meet the the German Sturmtruppen and, and uh, assault troops as they begin conducting raids to figure out what is the me- what are the metal of these Americans that we're now facing. Um, and so each each infantry regiment inside the 26th Division gets tested. That's where the, the 103rd does a really incredible job at taking the lessons learned from the other regiments and, and absolutely destroying this, uh, this German assault force that is sent at them. Um, and the, the German AAR is, is quite, quite fascinating as it talks about, you know, we've, we're underestimating these Americans. They're learning very quickly. Um, and then from there, it is, uh, you know, it's the, the last gap as the Germans are, are, are beginning their peace offensives, which I think is a hilarious, you know, we're going to, we're going to kill a bunch of people. Why for peace? Uh, they are, they're quickly shifted off the front line, um, and to the, uh, Chateau Thierry, uh, Marne, Marne Valley, really, uh, thrown in there, replacing the second division, uh, in, in their, their, uh, their positions just, just west of, uh, of Chateau Thierry and where the, uh, the, the, their hold the third division, American third division, was holding along the Marne, um, and this is their first offensive. Um, they begin they begin attacking on July 18th, uh, and that gets carried out through around July 22nd, 23rd. At which point the division is, as I sort of said, sort of used up. Um, of course, they've been on the front lines sort of without a break since since February. Uh, with no replacement, so they've accumulated plenty of casualties. But really, the the division is worn out in this advance of about nine miles. Um, they get about a month off, and then it's time for the San Miguel offensive. Goes very very well um, for the 103rd, precisely because of the lessons they learned in the summer offensives. Mainly, it's not 1914, so maybe don't run at machine guns in the open. Just just a thought. Uh, you can imagine the the French and the British watching the Americans going, oh, what are you doing? Morons. We, we tried this for three years. There's a reason we're in trenches. Um, and then uh, and then from the San Miguel offensive, they go into the Meuse-Argonne offensive just two weeks later. Um, and so they are operationally employed with the exception of three weeks in August uh, for the entirety of the of, of the of the war in 1918, uh, beginning and uh, after they go onto their first front at the beginning of February, um, so it is a very long and detailed and exhausting operational history, um, precisely because they they just are not getting time in rear areas to to recover their strength or or anything like that. How well do you think the 103rd learned um, to fight on the Western Front? And what sort of challenges did they face? I'm thinking about the perennial question that me and colleagues talk about. It's a learning process or the learning curve that certainly the British Army went through and, and, and the Americans as well, and so did the Germans and the French. But it's a sort of perennial thing. How yeah. well did individual units actually adapt to the situations they found? Yeah, it's... Um... It's funny because I was just having this conversation with a couple of colleagues as we look at how AEF divisions were learning and sort of how quickly they learned. The you know of course the big problem in you know first you have to learn how to fight on the defensive. Um, they they they're excellent on the defensive. They they never actually they never lose a prisoner um, while fighting on the defensive, um, which is pretty good because the Germans are very good at raiding and getting prisoners, um, and soldiers are very good at falling asleep and getting taken prisoners. So. Um, they were very proud of that. So very quick to adapt to defensive fighting. But as you know, so is everybody in, in World War One. You get very you get very good on fighting on the defensive. What happens when you 
when you go on the offensive and as uh, you know, the artillery is the dominant arm on the offensive. So how long can you keep pounding your enemy with artillery before you run out of range of your own guns uh, further into the range of the enemy's guns? And also, so how do you, can you bring your own artillery up quickly enough? Can you supply it quickly enough? And then can you communicate adequately with your artillery, your infantry and your support troops so you don't have fratricide um, and so that the artillery actually knows what it's shooting at because it tends to be somewhat demoralizing to the infantry when they're getting shot at from the front and the rear. And this is the big, to my mind, this is the big problem of World War I. How do you maintain that offensive momentum and that synchronization? How, how do you manage the coordination? And for the 26th Division and the 103rd Infantry, it's tough. It's very tough. The 2nd Marne was a bloodbath. The 103rd took the most casualties out of any infantry regiment in the 26th Division during that battle. Um, it was highly successful uh, in its offensives, um, in mostly due to individual valor of people managed, taking over um, squads and platoons when, they're, when their sergeants and lieutenants are shot down and working their way around the edges of machine gun nests, knocking them out. But Valor, as the French and, and British and Germans and Russians and everyone well knew, you, you can't manage a strategy on valor. Um, Elan it was not going to be the thing that, that won the war, just like the, the American and the fighting in the open with his rifle and bayonet is not going to be the thing that wins the war for the Americans. So they really have to learn. And San Miguel is the um, sort of the proving moment for the 103rd, showing that they're able to work in concert with other troops um, and for the 26th division to manage their artillery in that they, they begin pushing their artillery. Uh, they begin devoting light artillery to their combat units to accompany them on the advance. Um, and so now they are, they're advancing sort of the, to that next step. Uh, the AEF learns very quickly, but not fast enough. Um, and, and the problem Really, one of the greatest problems is as quickly as officers and NCOs learn how to fight and survive on the Western Front in 1918, you know, those very specific conditions, as quickly as they learn, they are transferred out to go to these other, these new divisions that the draftees are creating, this new national army, this, this great idea of, you know, can we, can the American people, um, citizen soldiers learn how to fight a global industrial conflict, you know, they're going to need leaders. So let's give some, let's take these, these, these regulars, these guardsmen who have been fighting on the, the Western front for a couple battles. Let's pull them out and send them to uh, send them to, to these other divisions. Cause you know, the U S army is looking at providing 40 divisions um, in 1918 and hopefully 80 by the following year, if, uh, if the war continued. And so this is a massive challenge that every single office, every single leader is writing about of just saying, you know, as soon as we get a good team together that knows what they're doing, people get pulled out and we get sent some new, some new brand new lieutenant who has no idea what's happening and they get killed in the next few days. Um, sort of that litany of, of tragedies that happens, I think, in every army across the, the Western Front. So in some ways, they're really, I always like to say they're trying to learn four years of lessons in 10 months. Um, highly difficult. Uh, and and as I said, the, the Germans, when fighting on the defensive, uh, the German AAR for the, their failed attack against the 103rd of about 600 shock troops against really what was about two, about three companies of the 103rd, um, said we have, we have underestimated, we continue to underestimate the, um, 
the fighting qualities of, of the American soldiers, namely because they're looking at what we're doing and they're doing it. When, when they notice that we don't shoot at them from our machine gun emplacements, when they're on scouting parties, they're doing the same thing. And so now we can't find where their machine gun positions are. They're very cleverly concealed. Um, and they're, they're doing the stuff we do. Um, and so you see the infiltration tactics begin to get used inside the 103rd um, after Samuel and the Mirs are gone. Um, a lot of individual initiative uh, at the platoon level of coming up with creative ways to solve the, uh, the, the, the perennial problems of, of World War I, which is how, how do you achieve some sort of a breakthrough? And I know it's really difficult to do this. I mean, military military effectiveness is, is what I'm coming to, but how would you rate the capabilities 103rd in France? I know that's, you know, looking at metrics and, you know, greater minds of, of than me have tried to answer that <laughs> question, but from what you think, do they become an effective military force? That's a, yeah, that is a tough question. Um, and I have to take my own, my own feelings out of this because I, you know, once you write a book about a unit and you start talking about their leaders and their soldiers, you get incredibly attached uh, and you sort of form this odd relationships across a century uh, for people who definitely never met and would no longer be alive today, even if they hadn't been killed in France. Um, as, as an effective force, so the Germans rated the 26th Division fairly well. Uh, they said it was a competent division. Um, it was, the, the 26th Division had a problem, which was it ran afoul, its commander ran afoul of the AEF commander, uh, General Pershing. There was also um, the problems of regular army National Guard politics uh, that come into play of you know, professionals versus citizen soldiers. So with that, um, the 26th Division actually ref received some of the fewest replacements out of any other AEF division in France. So even though it is so heavily involved, um, you know, on, on the front lines longer than anyone really, except for the first division, um, it receives... Uh, the, the only it receives its only real meaningful replacements in August, uh, and then a small trickle in September, and that's it. And so by the time they're fighting in the Mirs are gone, each battalion is around 150 to 200 effectives. That's down from 12, 1300 that they start that they're supposed to have. Um, other divisions are getting, and even other guard divisions like the 32nd, the 28th, 27th, they're all getting a lot more replacements. They're actually getting the replacements they need to make up for their combat losses. So what I'm saying is the 26 is following the second Marne, it is always under strength. So it's really hard to gauge effectiveness um, when, when you've got a unit that's essentially at, at well below 50% strength. That said, um, it is... It is, I would say it's average. It's about average. It's neither, it's, uh, it's neither, it's a great unit on the defense. It is average on the offense. But what you really see, and you see this in the Mirrors Argonne, where they're operating in such small numbers, is you have leaders who started as lieutenants who are now battalion commanders uh, inside the 103rd, who have just taken in all this knowledge. Um, and it's a really interesting moment because they're given their commander that they had through the whole war, the regimental commander, Colonel Frank Hume, is relieved on November 8th, uh, just a few days before the war ends, uh, for, or before the armistice. Uh, and a new guy is put in place, and he just says, you know, attack, don't worry about flanks, don't worry about liaison, just go forward. And you've got these, these captains who are saying to each other, we've done that. We tried that. That's how we lost a lot of men. And so what you have is literally these battalion commanders ignoring their regimental commanders, sort of 
paying lip service, but working with each other to ensure that their flanks are covered, that they're linked in together, that they're, that they're using indirect fire, that they're using machine guns to be able to suppress enemy objectives and then move in with small groups of squads and platoons to be able to, to get into German lines. Um, and that's where they are literally in the last days of the war. So even though they are so attrited, they're still an effective combat unit that is breaking through successive German lines, uh, uh, really just, just north of Verdun. Like they end the war um, really about, I think about four miles north of Verdun. So across this, uh, the same area that, that has been so scarred and fought over uh, in, the, in the German offensives and the, the French counteroffensive. Um, so uh, it is, it is, uh, it is, it is effective, but very, very uh, in pain, so to speak, at the end of the war. Which is a nice segue into my next question about casualties. What were sort of mm. sort of levels of the 103rd, maybe compared to other regiments within the 26th Division? So each of the regiments inside the 26th Division um, is very badly bled uh, by the end of the war. By the Mers are gone. You know they're fighting as I said, just north of Verdun in this really horrible positions. And the Germans, again, they're smart. They've, they've got machine guns and checkerboard formations. They've, they've maximized the number of machine guns inside their division. So they're really, they're committed to a war of attrition, you know, just bleeding the Entente down to try to get the best terms they can. Um, one, of the, one of the regiments of the 26th Division actually all, pretty much collapses. It's pulled off the front line in the final days and, and can't actually conduct warfare as an offensive unit anymore. Um, Everyone else, you remember, this is also the time of uh, influenza. You know, there's a whole bunch of people there who are sick. Uh, it's 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 not great. <laughs> um, and uh, morale is low. Their division commander was relieved. In the 103rd, the regimental commander was relieved. There's a lot of feeling of well, we're not very we're not very much appreciated. But levels of casualties, um, you have something over 400 who are killed in action uh, through the war with the 103rd. Um, you have around 2000 that are wounded in action. Um, that is a number that is always in flux because with a lot of the, and I'm not sure how it worked in the BEF, but in the AEF, if you became a casualty and you had to go far enough behind the divisional aid stations for care, there was no guarantee that you were going back to your outfit. It was, you were going back to whatever unit had needed people. So you can imagine someone who's been in this outfit for a long time, um, you know, they know everyone in their company because they grew up with them. Um, a lot of wounds were not reported simply because they did not want to go back farther beyond the divisional aid stations uh, for care. Some of them did, and some of them escaped their hospitals and um, made their way back to their units. Uh, but there's, but it, it's really hard to get an accurate number of casualties. What we can also say is anybody who's on the line uh, from October to through November was was subjected to to gas uh, because the whole whole area was just absolutely drenched by the Germans. It was their sort of anti area or their area denial weapon uh, in that sector. Um, <clears throat> looking at the individuals who left Maine in 1917. So those 2002, you have 50% casualties of killed, wounded, gassed, and missing, um, which is, you know, if there, was a US, if there was an army unit that had that today, that would be catastrophic. Um, and so you're, what you're really looking at is you're looking at numbers that are comparable to the American Civil War. And that's sort of a comparison I like to make because with these, you know, like territorial units, 
where these people are all drawn from the same communities. It means a, a very one misplaced shell means one town's having a very, very bad day. Um, and so there's a couple days, uh, you know, July 18th sees the most fallen um, from Maine pro- since the Civil War all in one day. So it is this really this really catastrophic uh, effect on, on a lot of a lot of communities. And this is a, a side question, but I think it's, it's an interesting one. It's the role of the sort of local communities in supporting the unit in wars. I know a lot of US Civil War units were raised on a very regional level. And did this regional identity actually help with sort of a broad morale, I suppose, for want of a better word, in the unit? Did it still have a sort of a regional identification with a, where a lot of these men had worked and lived before they enlisted? Definitely. Um, there is a very strong, I mean, the, the 26th Division being wholly from New England, um, they carried that with pride, uh, nicknamed themselves the Yankee Division, you know, as all troops are wont to do, they, the soldiers in the AEF begin putting together their own, their own patches, their own uh, ways of identifying themselves that become now the, the current U.S. Army um, uh, basically unit identification patches uh, for, for divisions. And uh, so there is this very, very strong unit pride that is tied to the communities where they're from. That, of course, is going to get leavened throughout the war as casualties, you take casualties and you get new replacements in. Um, and after the Second Battle of the Marne, really, um, you, you see individuals acting out of great bravery and heroism for their friends, because, like I said, many of them are, they, they were high school classmates together or nephews or brothers, um, this heartbreaking moment of these two brothers shaking hands before they go into this attack where one of them is going to get killed. Um, so yes, I mean, as in terms of will soldiers fight harder if they, you know, if they have these connections, absolutely. What does that mean though, once the casualties are taken? And it means that you have uh, a, a, a huge blow to unit cohesion um, and soldiers are somewhat reluctant following following these these uh, the offensives in July to do anything that is going to cause these same um, the same bloodletting and there's a, there's a certain reluctance but at the same time that also forces them to do things that make sense um, such as infiltration tactics and listening to all the things that their their French tutors taught them about about making war um, and then at the on the home front level of course it is uh, it is it is absolutely devastating of, of how many young men just don't come back. Um, I tell a story in the book about one specific squad that, that all enlisted um, as they were graduating from high school. Um, their, their high school photo is all of them in their olive drab uniforms. Um, and by the, you know, just a year and a half later, all but one are dead or wounded. That's, that's, that, and and that's that's the story that is common to England, to France, to Germany, as as industrial war meets uh, you know the, the realities of, of of human life. And so, how is the unit remembered today? And I should probably ask: Does the unit still exist in some form um, in Maine to this to this day? Yeah. Um, so the unit does exist. Um, it is today. It is an engineer unit. Um, it's gone through a whole bunch of permutations following World War One, as the U.S. Army tried to decide what it was going to be for, depending on which war. Um, so there were infantry for a long time through World War II. They fought in the South uh, Southwest Pacific, uh, doing island hopping, um, and uh, 
they uh, they transitioned to armor uh, during the Cold War because you know need tanks, um, and then uh, and eventually in the in the late sixties transitioned to engineers, which uh, we continue to be today. Um, that is my battalion, the one thirty third Engineer Battalion. So really proud of that heritage. In fact, like the company I commanded was Company D of the one hundred third Infantry that has been in the town of Norway, Maine since eighteen o two. So very very proud of that and. Uh, uh, especially when I was, it was very weird when I was reading the letters and the journals of the guy who commanded Company D in World War One, because I'm sort of going, oh wow, this is my it's my predecessor. <laughs> and, uh, so so it's very cool. Um, and how is the unit remembered today? It that's a hard one. Um, so at first glance, you would say it's not. Um, there are not sort of in any New England town you go into, you're going to see a statue of a Union soldier from the American Civil War, just as you'll see across Europe, uh, the monuments to, to those who, who were lost in World War One. We don't have the big World War One monuments, um, but we have a surprisingly large number of small World War One monuments that you would overlook if you weren't sort of on the lookout. Uh, Maine, the University of Southern Maine did a great job over the centennial of putting together a um, a registry of World War I monuments. And what they found was, was almost shocking in that there were tons of them in every single town, remembering their dead, um, even in high schools, uh, in schools, you'd have plaques on the wall uh, with even photographs uh, that everyone just sort of walked by every day, ignoring. And you know, here's the, you know, the first young man from Maine to die in World War I or the first person from that town. Um, and uh, there, there's other things like uh, in, in the city where I normally live, Portland, there's a row, there's just rows of linden trees surrounding this, uh, this estuary, sort of we call it Back Bay um, off of Casco Bay. And everyone just assumes that there's just sort of these really nice trees and there's a run route there. That was, that was built as a World War I monument. Um, and every tree is dedicated to a soldier from the Great War or a service member. So in plain sight, you have the lar- one of the largest World War I memorials in the country and nobody sort of knows what it is. Um, and that's sort of how it is with the 103rd. So there are there is no unit memorial for the 103rd Infantry uh, in the U.S., uh, or at least from, from World War One, There's a small one from World War II. Um, and there's no memorials in France. There was there was a talk of, of, of having a regimental memorial um, on the Second Marne battlefield. Now, what there is at the Second Marne outside um, Bella Wood is the 26th Division Chapel, which is uh, the, the chapel was destroyed by 26th Division artillery um, as they were taking the town of Bellow, so advancing from Bellow Wood. And uh, after the conflict, the members of the division decided to rebuild the chapel out of basically subscription funds. So the soldiers raised raised money um, and uh, and donated to the town. And in gratitude, the town sort of gave the church to dedicated the church to the 26th Division. So it's very strange where you're walking through, you know, this very small French town. And you walk into this church, and you see hanging from the the uh, from the pillars are the flags from every New England state, and there's a divisional flag, um, and the the names of the divisions, war dead, line the wall. Um, so every single soldier who was killed in the division is has their name on the wall, um, and bits of the bits of the church have this New England. Um, uh, what do I say? I don't want to say feel, but I mean, like the altar was donated and, and made out of main granite uh, type deal. So um, 
it is it is this really small little unique piece of um of, of american history that most people would just walk right by and, and not have any idea that it's there and finally where can people learn more and get the book so the good news is that the book is free um i wrote this and since i wrote this uh as a as a uh, part of my official duties as a army historian um, and on the taxpayers time it is a free document um, so it is published by army university press so you can go to their website and look up to the last man a national guard regiment in the great war if you are the type of person who likes to read um, digital books so you can download it for free immediately and have your instant gratification if you're like me and you like to have um, a hard copy in which to mark up and doggy ear and also put on a shelf so that you can uh, have it on, you know, ha have it with all the other books on your shelf and slowly challenge the structural integrity of your house um, to see whether it can maintain just one more book. Um, you go to the bottom of the web page where it says order a book and they will send you a copy for free. So um, as long as they are still in stock. But uh, luckily, I, I got very um very lucky in that it the the book won the distinguished writing award for the from the army historical foundation um and so i think we'll have some we will continue to have reprintings of the book i will warn people you can get it on amazon um but if you pay for it well you're paying for it and it's, so it's not free and also none of that actually goes to uh myself or the army university press this is what happens when books are published without copyrights like all government publications are and amazon has a a pay for uh, or a fee to print service where you can uh, they they can make money off of that but you know hey the, the story is getting out there so i can't complain too much Jonathan, thank you very much for your time well thank you so much for having me this was a this was a real honor you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorpe thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition the theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...